This episode of the Organic BC podcast was supported by the BC Climate Agri-Solutions Fund. This is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode, you can't run a successful rotational grazing system without good fencing. Rancher Tristan Banwell guest hosts to interview fencing expert Axel Boris of FenceFast about the crucial considerations for using electric fencing in a rotational grazing setup. That's really all I need to say because not only did Tristan host this episode, but he provided a really great introduction and I'll let him take it from here. Talk to you at the end. Hello, Organic BC podcast listeners. I'm your guest interviewer, Tristan Banwell. I'm an organic livestock producer and have been implementing rotational grazing at our ranch for a number of years. Rotational grazing is the practice of moving livestock into a defined area of forage, termed a paddock, for a controlled amount of time before moving them on to another paddock and allowing the plants to rest and recover. A 2022 study in the western U.S. determined that 15% of cow-calf producers are using more intensive forms of rotational grazing, where the grazing period is less than two weeks, and a further 25% have implemented some basic longer rotations among larger paddocks, with grazing periods of two weeks or more. The other 60% of producers are still using continuous grazing, also called set stocking. This practice leaves the flock or herd grazing a large area for long periods of time at a lower stocking density. In this system, plants begin to recover after grazing using their diminished photosynthetic potential, diminished because their solar panel got munched off, and using their root reserves. But before the plant has had a chance to regrow and recover, a grazing animal will return and bite off the leaves again. This tends to weaken plants over time, and sometimes particularly damages the most desirable forage species in the pasture, as the livestock can focus on those and ignore the less tasty species. This, of course, is called overgrazing. Overgrazing eventually leads to diminished productivity, and sometimes to a pasture full of undesirable weeds. If you're following what I'm explaining, the important thing is that overgrazing is not a function of stocking rate of too many cows, as many people may assume. Overgrazing is a function of time, exposing forage plants to grazing pressure for too long. In contrast, producers using rotational grazing focus on controlling grazing period in their management. Livestock are run at a much higher density, but moved regularly, in some cases multiple times per day. The goal is to get the grazing animals off of the paddock before the plants begin to regrow and recover, preventing what graziers call the second bite. A grazier, by the way, is a producer focused on the production of forages and the grazing management of livestock. We want those plants to fully recover and replenish their root reserves before we return for another grazing. This recovery may take a couple of months, or it may take a full year, depending on the environment, forage species, and conditions. Producers implementing rotational grazing can expect to reap a number of benefits. Many report increased yields as the productivity of individual healthy plants improves and the forage plants fill in the pasture more densely. Uniformity of grazing pressure and protection of desirable plant species tends to reduce undesirable weeds and can increase the diversity of desirable species. Manure is distributed throughout the pasture as fertilizer rather than being removed and concentrated around trees, watering sites, and the herd's favorite camping spots. Forage quality can be higher, 
as we are able to maintain forage plants in a highly digestible vegetative state. We can also plan our grazing rotations to stockpile forage for winter grazing, reducing our need for expensive winter feed. Proper grazing management may increase nutrient cycling, sequester soil carbon, improve soil health, and increase water holding capacity. And all of this helps to reduce or even eliminate inputs and increase the resilience of your pastures in the face of climate uncertainty. So, are you ready to get started? Paddock subdivisions for rotational grazing can be developed using permanent physical barrier fences such as woven wire or barbed wire, but by far the fastest, most effective, and most economical option today is electric fencing. Both high tensile, permanent, exterior, and subdivision fences, along with highly portable temporary fences that allow flexible and adaptable grazing management to match conditions precisely. To that end, Today I'm speaking with fencing expert Axel Boris of FenceFast. We focus on the development of electric fencing infrastructure to facilitate rotational grazing, but crop producers interested in wildlife exclusion will also find many points of interest. Okay, let's get into the interview. Axel Boris from FenceFast, thanks so much for joining us today on the Organic BC podcast. If you could go ahead and introduce yourself and give us a bit of your background and tell us how you got into fencing. Hi, my name is Axel Boris. I'm the president of FenceFast Limited. We're primarily a, a supply fence supply business with a heavy focus on electric fencing, um, also wildlife mitigation fencing, and tools and fasteners for for fencing products and and fencers and stuff. I've been doing this since 1998, I guess. So I don't know. We're getting up there in years now. I don't know if I can do the math, but probably coming on 20. 24, 25 years now I've been at it. So. And you've built fence all across British Columbia, all kinds of different bioregions across Western Canada. Across Western Canada, yeah. Primarily British Columbia, but yeah, a lot of we've done recently, we've done some stuff out in the prairies as well and, and worked with a, a range of producers and customers right across the board, right from zoos to, you know, people in the rotational grazing systems, uh, bear mitigation for landfills and producers and yeah, lots of different different aspects of the fence industry primarily in the agricultural and wildlife sector though um and we do a, you know have a little bit of a background in commercial but not a not a lot mostly agricultural fence stuff okay and safe to say right from a nice sandy soil that you could ac- accidentally overdrive a post and then right down to right across a rock bluff and the nastiest ground that you could lay a fence across yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly, actually, muskeg is the worst because okay. whack a few posts and all of a sudden it goes through the top layer. And <laughs> shoop, grab it on because it's disappeared. <laughs> on okay, but, but yeah, there's there's been I fenced across frozen ponds and all kinds of nasty stuff. Okay, I have to say though, of anywhere I've traveled, BC is probably one of the most challenging places to fence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. um, you know, maybe besides, you know, South Island, New Zealand or a few other places like that. But yeah, with our mountainous terrain and being that we were glaciated, you know, you have such a diversity of soil types and conditions and it's just, yeah, it's nothing's easy about it. So let's let's talk a bit about the typical kinds of physical barrier fencing that we'd find on livestock operations. And then maybe you can go in and contrast that with how an electric fence system functions. So traditional fencing, as 
you know, first fencing really started out there was barbed wire. That's what was, you know, started off as the first livestock fencing in, in North America was barbed wire back in the 1800s. And, and then, you know, we moved to woven wire for, you know, smaller animals generally. Um, today, we have a much more diverse materials and stuff that we can draw from. But, you know, we still have traditional barbed wire physical barrier fences and woven wire uh, physical barrier fences. Mm -hmm. um, those are fences that are built to physically keep an animal from going through them. Now, you could also have wood or rail or log. Those are other types of physical barrier fences. Um, in some cases, even in BC, we've built rock fences. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there's a few cases where ministry has, but it was so rocky that they, you know, the contractor with an excavator and stacked the rocks <laughs> up and, and made a solid rock fence out of it because oh, it wow. was really the most economically viable way to do it. It was so rocky. Um, but yeah, typically you're, you're creating a barrier fence to prevent the animal from going through it. Okay. Um, when you come over to an electric fencing, that is purely psychological. So the wire there is delivering a shock. You have a charger or an energizer that is producing that shock and sending it down the fence line. That animal touches the wire, that shock passes through them to the ground, returning back to the energizer. And that sharpness of the shock is what scares that animal and, and makes them frightened of the fence. Right. So that is you know, a psychological barrier. So they're, they're scared to actually touch the fence and that's how that creates a barrier. So they don't go through. Okay. They learn that there's, they learn that there's some bad juju in that fence might not know exactly what's going on with it, but we learn not to touch that thing. We're not going. Yeah. They, they typically, I say, if everything on the farm is terrified of that electric fence, including you, then you have a very effective electric <laughs> fence. Um, I know personally, I won't touch anything over three joules voluntarily. Yeah. Um, like even under, I'm a little hesitant, but anything over that I know hurts. Yeah. Um, I've been hit by a few big ones in the past and it's not an experience you'd want to, you know, do voluntarily that's for sure no doubt yeah if you're if you're especially if you're well grounded in any way touching the irrigation pipe and the fence at the same time is never a positive experience and we we tend to have kind of a a blanket rule on our farm you never joke around about the electric fence that's not something we tease or haze with any crew on the farm or anything we never mess with it if you say it's off it's definitely off we're not tricking each other on the fence so, yeah i i i carry a tester yeah I, oh yeah i I test and make sure it's off. I don't trust anything else. Um, I've been hit. Like I said, I've been hit accidentally enough times that, yeah, it, it's, you know, and, and that's the thing. Like a lot of times, you know, we get people that, oh, my electric fence isn't effective. It doesn't work. Majority of the time, they're either underpowered or poorly grounded. Let's discuss the advantages and disadvantages of the physical barrier fence versus the psychological barrier of the electric fence. Yeah. So some of the advantages of physical barrier fencing, obviously is that we can, you know, put physical pressure against it. So if we're working livestock or holding livestock, you know, it, it can handle the pressures that we're putting against it. Um, psychological barrier fencing is, you know, I mean, you could push it to a point, but you know, it doesn't have the physical characteristics. So if they do want to go and they're pushed hard enough, they, they could potentially go through it. So, you know, depending on what your use of your fence is, I usually generally split it. If you're doing grass, grazing control, I say, you know, psychological barrier fencing. If you're using it for holding or working or 
things like that, then that would be your physical barrier fencing requirements. So you're talking on a something like a corral, a high pressure situation. We're not going to do ourselves any favors pushing pushing livestock into an electric fence while we're yeah. trying to move them through a handling facility. Yeah, I mean, you you could build an electric fence with with physical barrier properties to to do that, but at the end of the day, it, you're probably just better putting a woven wire or a type of fence up or or a rails or pipe or something, right? Okay. Um, now that could be a holding area too. Maybe you want some physical barrier because you're doing some handling in there in a, in a in a larger pen or something. But typically, um, you know, if they're just out on summer grass and I'm just grazing, or even in winter and I'm just you know doing some extended grazing out there, all I'm looking to do is control the livestock. So I'm trying to do that with as minimal cost and input as possible. Um, that is one advantage to the electric fencing is it requires less less infrastructure, which means less cost, less time to install, and less maintenance. Right, okay. Downside of it is, yes, you do have to check it once in a while to make sure it is on. I mean, nowadays, we have apps. You can tell it on your phone if it's not on, you know, if you have the right energizer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's not so bad. And, and really, sometimes it is an advantage because I can go literally test the electric fence and tell if I have a problem anywhere on that fence somewhere and if there is a problem uh, you know it can show me with a tester in a direction where that fault might be um, or I could even have fault finders in different locations on the on the fence right. um, so yeah I mean it's a little bit easier to monitor um, whereas my physical barrier barbed wire fence I really don't know I have a problem till you know the neighbor shows us as my cows are out <laughs> um, you yeah. know so I mean there there is positive and negative to, to some of it uh, electric fencing you know does require a bit more um, brush control maintenance, mm -hmm. you know, you should be going around and brushing it out every few years, but you know, as a professional fence contractor, I recommend that to any fence because it's good maintenance to, to keep the trees and the brush from growing up in your, in either your physical or your psychological barrier fences. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, cost is a big one though. Like I said, cost nowadays, you know, with the price of posts being up there and even the price of steel to, to build a physical barrier fence, that cost is, is quite extensive now. Mm -hmm. um, I know even through the, you know, the BC fencing program that's running through Cattlemen's, like they've seen at least a 25% or greater increase in the cost of, you know, installing, you know, our, our government certified range and highway fencing. Mm -hmm. um, just like I said, materials and price of fuel and drives the price of labor, everything's been driven up, right? Right. So if we can find that more cost-effective option in the, electric fence where it's appropriate um, we can get those outcomes we need from our fencing but potentially save a few dollars while we're installing it yeah so like electric fencing typically can range anywhere you know from a half like for cattle i mean to save anywhere between you know a quarter to the third the cost of what a traditional like barbed wire barrier fence would cost right so, you know, we're talking a two, you know, one, two, three wire type fencing for, mm -hmm. for cattle fencing. Um, obviously, you know, if we're looking at sheep or goats, that's going to be a, a bit more wires. And that, but also too, we're, we're looking to do predation control then as well, which we can't do with the, the barbed wire fencing, right? Right. So, you know, there is an advantage to, to that as well, because predation fencing, we're looking usually, you know, six, seven wire electric fences. Okay. And let's... Let's stay on those permanent electric high tensile exterior fencing 
now and get to the basics, talk about the, the key factors for a strong, solid, effective and lasting fence. So uh, earlier you had met, you've touched a little bit on energizers and there's the grounds and then we've got the actual physical portions of, of the fencing. So can you take us through how that system works? It doesn't really matter if you're building a physical barrier or psychological barrier. The foundations of the fence is your your terminations or your anchors and your bracing of the fence. Right. So in a physical barrier fence, because we are putting high strains of, on the wire, you know, potentially, you know, four strand fence, we could be potentially 1,500 pounds plus mm-hmm. wire tension on that. You know, if the wire is at 350 a, a tie-off tension mm-hmm. um, in the winter time with 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 wire contraction that could get as high as 2500 pounds okay. so you know we need to create brace structure there that will physically hold those wires and maintain them at those tensions now when we drop down to electric fencing because it doesn't you know we don't need the wire as tight because we're not actually physically restraining the cattle, we're just trying to maintain that wire at a you know a reasonable height so they can come in contact with it. We can have a lower tension. So typically, on high tensile electric fences, we're looking at 150 to 200 pounds of tension on the wire. Mm-hmm. So we can use a lot. You know, we don't need to be using big H braces for just you know one, two, or three wire electric fencing. We can get away with a big single, you know, wood post potentially as our anchor or even a, a pipe post driven, you know, five, six feet in the ground, mm-hmm. you know, a three inch pipe. So you can get away with, you know, just a single brace structure to do that or a, a modified post with maybe a, a, a breast log or a rear anchor in the ground or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that again, brings our cost down. Like if I can go out and just have to use a single anchor, post i don't have to use a, a an h brace which requires you know two posts and a brace rail you know again my cost reduces right okay yeah and um, so but then when you get up into those um if we're talking about a predator exclusion fence a, a sheep containment fence and you're getting yes. to say a six to eight strand high tensile then we're back up into yeah we're back into H braces then to to as a, as a brace to structurally support those again yes so again when you start getting into to you know probably four wires or more then you need to have a a, a more brace structure again because you're getting the weights you know even at 200 pounds you know i get up to six wires you know my my tension's getting up to you know in that 1200 pound range again right mm-hmm. so you know i need to i need to counteract that that stress that's on the those brace posts Okay. Because it's for every, you know, it, that wire always wants to go in a straight line and it always wants to relieve its tension. Right. So when you're designing a fence, you always have to factor in that it always wants to go straight. So if I'm making directional changes, is what I'm putting in going to be able to support that without moving? Mm-hmm. The anchors that I'm putting in, is it going to be able to support the tension I'm putting on it without moving? You know, factors in that could be what's my ground if i'm in really soft ground i may need to go to a bigger post and a deeper depth mm-hmm. um, i may have to even add extra support to that right mm-hmm. so you know a lot of it is you know how many wires i'm putting on the tile fence i'm putting on and the ground type i'm working with okay um and the same thing would go for your end braces that you mentioned i mean the same the same factors would go for your change of direction braces if you're only putting in a two strand 
um, containment fence for cattle, you're going to get away with a change of direction going around potentially one large post driven deep enough it, if the ground's correct versus a brace for more wires. Yeah, it, it doesn't even take that much. Like, you know, the end, I probably I want a night like tip, if I'm going to I'm going to use wood for right now. But if I'm using a wood post, I'm probably going to want a five, six inch diameter, mm-hmm. eight footer typically driven, you know, four feet in the ground. Mm-hmm. I do drive them recommend driving them on about a half bubble slope away from the the pull of the wire okay so that it's it's preloaded back mm-hmm. if you start vertically and there is some movement now you're actually starting to the post can start to lean out and then potentially pull out of the ground right mm-hmm. so if we preload it that that helps reduce that that factor okay um if i'm using pipe then we're just going to go deeper or like i said we can put a i call it a spade or a like a piece of metal that goes into the ground just below the ground to help support that, like a blade in the ground mm-hmm. to add extra surface support to that post. So that would be, but yeah, anytime you're... there's a directional change, you can just lean the post and go around the backside of it. That's the beauty with electric smooth wire. You can go from side to side as you need to. Right. And so when you're talking about the spade on the, on a pipe post, so if we're, if we we're talking a three inch, um, end post it's three inch steel end post pipe you're talking about um going pa- uh, parallel to the direction of pull and welding on a, a piece of flat stock or something onto the side of that pipe um to give yeah, it that... welding or bolting it on okay. yeah it's just it's it's across um like 90 degrees to the pull right mm-hmm. so that that's going into the ground you know and just like even if you just get it down six inches or so is enough. Like all you're trying to do is get it into the ground. So it's acting like a blade mm-hmm. and, and adding extra support to keep that post from moving surface okay. area support. Okay. And okay. So as we transition from brace posts, change of direction and end braces um, into line posts, I should mention, we both know that in organic production systems, organic producers are not permitted to purchase and install new posts that are treated with um, with pesticides like uh, chromated copper arsenate, CCA would be a common one. Uh, they are co- uh, permitted to continue to use those existing posts. So something like a steel post is really interesting to, uh, to organic operators who are installing a, a new post. Um, my, my, uh, I've, I've kind of been concerned with my electric fences with the steel posts because of my fear that I'm going to create some grounding issue and end up grounding out my hot wires. So can you talk a little bit about using insulators on those end posts and brace posts and what are our best practices for preventing problems when we use steel posts and electric fence systems? Yeah, good quality insulator is really the key to, to any electric fence. I, you know, I always say like you could save a, th- you know, a, a third of the cost or have less than half the cost of, of traditional fencing, but make sure you don't cheap out. Use the best quality materials you can get because it will come back to to bite you in the maintenance side and the failure side, like you said. So a good um, end strain insulator, you know, that tied onto the steel post will help shield it from, from leaking that way. Mm-hmm. And then insulators on the post good quality uv insulators um, my preferred brand is gallagher but there is you know other good brands like datamars with true test mm-hmm. um, and anything really that comes out of new zealand is generally good quality mm-hmm. uh, new zealand market really doesn't uh, 
appeal to anything that's not good quality down there. Right. So you can usually find if it's from New Zealand, it's usually you can count it as a quality insulator. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, good quality insulator on the post will help prevent that leakage onto the metal. And that being said too, like I said, I do try to uh, minimize how much steel if I can, because mm-hmm. steel, like you said, always can be an issue in the fence because if a wire does touch it, it it creates a dead short. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is something to be aware of. So in our line posts, we try to, you know, instead of maybe using a T post with insulators on, if we can go to a, a fiberglass post or something like the Gallagher insulated line post, um, there's a few other composite posts out there. Um, possibly even a plastic post could be used. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just trying to really eliminate things that are conductive in the fence line as much as possible. Cause again, that helps reduce, you know, any potentials for uh, shorts to ground. Okay. And you mentioned some different kinds of line posts. So we're talking line posts is when you've got a section of fence that's going in a straight direction, typically um, between those change of direction areas. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the types or your, your preferred types of those line posts in an electric fence. And then let's talk a little bit about the spacing on kind of relatively flat ground. And, and then when we might have to tighten up those spacings. Yeah. for I mean, typically, I mean, if you don't have restrictions with what you can use for posts, you could just use all wood line posts. Like a, like typically we were doing that. I'd use a four to five, seven pine post. Um, you could use a three to four. I just find wildlife and animals can break threes and fours so typically yes if you need to save it's maybe a good place to go but you know if you put a four or five in you're not going to get breakage from anything but a machine um but typically yeah if you want to you know you can go to like i said the gallagher insulated line post has been probably our go-to lately just for ease of installation durability and and flexibility because it's a very flexible post which i'll get into in in your maintenance savings um distance wise we are trying to stretch those posts out as far as we can um to obviously save cost but also create elasticity in that fence so that it can handle much more wildlife abuse and trees and things like that falling on it um again all we're trying to do is maintain that wire at a at a fairly consistent height so the livestock can come in contact with it. So, you know, we could have posts up to, you know, 15, 20 meters apart, you know, up to 50, 60 feet. Uh, You could stretch more if you wanted, if you're in flatter ground, but typically in BC on just an average, I usually look at about 12 meters as an average. But that might be in some places I have them closer and some places I stretch them further apart. Mm -hmm. You basically put a post where you need a post to maintain um, contour and obviously directional changes. Right. Okay. And and those line posts that you're mentioning, the Gallagher line post is a has a fiberglass core and then it has a, a sort of a poly overmolding that has spaces for yes. holding your wires at different heights using a clip. And, and the whole post is insulated. The clips are insulated. The, the entire post acts as your insulator from the ground. Correct. And it's a very flexible post because of that half inch fiberglass core inside of it. So again, that adds another dynamic of flexibility to that fence. So if the moose hits it or the elk hits it, that fence is is like a big spring. It can mm-hmm. just bounce around and, and absorb those impacts to prevent 
any breakage of of the the wires or the or the posts and clips themselves. Right. When a tree falls on your your barbed wire fence with twelve foot post spacings, those wires are going to break in various places. When it lands on the high tensile, most of the time we're lucky, and you can just buck the log right off, and your fence pops back up. Yeah, you might have to replace the odd insulator, but rarely you ever have a broken wire. And it's in yeah, usually I've found that last chunk of log you have to be careful with because it <laughs> usually goes flinging because <laughs> the wire bounces back up again. Yeah. 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 So again, that all comes down to to maintenance. Um, like I I had a a client one time we had to do several miles of fencing along a riparian. Um, it was actually a a park area that was he it was along the river that he his land adjoined and that park was full of dead pine trees mm-hmm. or beetle kill and you know we discussed it because he really he was adamant about wanting to put a barbed wire fence there but at the time i was doing all the repairs and i said i don't want to have <laughs> to fix all that every week and so we did a two-wire electric along that three miles and it was there was a lot of ups and downs and stuff as well like 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 uh drainages and stuff and yeah like about every month you'd go around and cut three or four or five trees off that fence and it would just spring back up. He said, you might lose the odd insulator, you know, if it landed near the post or something. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was able to handle that continuous abuse of the trees falling on it, as well as the wildlife that were, were going over it as well. And if that had been a barbed wire fence, that, that fence probably wouldn't have lasted a couple of years. Mm-hmm. It just would have been completely shredded. And constant maintenance. Yeah. So you mentioned constant. there, we're, we're talking about the, the wire. And when, we, when we're talking about high tensile um, electric fencing wire, there's kind of a gold standard. And then we've, we've seen the kind of uh, down to the farm store mild steel wire. What are we looking for, for a quality, highly conductive and, and strong fence wire for high tensile electric? Well, Ideally, 12 and a half gauge high tensile wire is what we're looking for. Now, there is some differences. Well, first off, I'll explain the difference between high tensile and, and, and low carbon. Okay. High tensile wire has to reach its break strength, which is typically in a 14, 1500 pound range before it will just it break, breaks. Um, whereas low carbon wire has a lower break strength. Typically, like I'll use canada barbed wire which has two strands of 12 and a half gauge low carbon wire those two strands even together their break strength's about 900 pounds okay. 950 pounds mm-hmm. um but what they do is they don't it that wire doesn't reach that 950 and just snap but it, it continue it stretches mm-hmm. so that that low carbon will just stretch out and stretch out and stretch out that's why it's really hard to maintain that barbed wire fence tight all the time because that wire with expansion and contractions is continually stretching itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas high tensile doesn't do that. It has an elasticity that it can handle a bit of stretch, but it has to actually reach its breaking point before it will break. Mm-hmm. So that makes that wire much stronger and able to handle a lot more abuse. Now, different qualities, you can have different hardnesses of high tensile wire. Um, so like you get a 200 PSI, High tensile wire is very stiff and harder to work with. Mm-hmm. You get a once 160,000 psi wire; it's it's much easier to manipulate and tie. So, like we carry a brand like Gallagher brand high tensile wire, and that they take that the lower type um, tensility of it, which allows it to be much easier to to tie and work with. Um, yeah. Whereas another, you know, there's some other brands out there. It's kind of like working with coat hangers and yeah, quite, quite hard to even myself that's, it's tied thousands and thousands of, of ties. 
I just, uh, I look at it and go, oh, that's going to be hard on my hands. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you, so, we've, we've got a stack of spools of Tree Island that we used to fence with, and I tied lots of knots with that. And then the first time I tied a knot in Gallagher wire, that stack of Tree Island that I have is still sitting there. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I yeah. can't even in good conscience give it to someone else. It's so much harder to tie with. I, you can use it up. Like I've done it on, you know, used it just for line wires. I do find though too that, like there is difference even in coatings too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, again, I, the Gallagher stuff seems to be, I have a better galvanized, it's shinier and, and doesn't send a powder up, but you know, some other manufacturers, you can get a little bit, you know, of, of a powdery on it and it doesn't seem to be quite as well galvanized, even mm-hmm. though it is supposed to be a class three gal. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the difference too, is most all your, your high tensile wires are class three galvanized or better. Whereas your standard barbed wire that you go down to the farm store will only be standard galvanized. Um, ministry wise for most highways and, and forestry range fences. Now ministry is requiring a class three barbed wire. And just to give you a example of that, a class three versus a standard roll of barbed wire will have about six pounds difference in weight. Oh, wow. Okay. For the same length of and fence. That's same length of fence. Wow. It's just more galvanization. Mm-hmm. So, that wire will last far longer before it rusts than the standard galvanized. Okay. And so that's why ministry is starting to use it. Um, you know, ideally if you're by a highway, obviously that makes a difference, but even they're trying to extend that wire from rusting for wildlife and everything as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, rusty wire carries tetanus and can, you know, potentially have tetanus and things like that derived okay. from it. Right. Okay. So let's now we've got our braces out, we've got our line posts, we've got our wires up, we've got some good quality. Um, can you run us through a bit of information about energizers, choosing the right size energizer, and then into that developing a quality ground system, and even maybe into that uh, how to hook up your energizer and your ground system to each other and to the fence? So we have. There, there's three ways you can you can do a, an electric fence. Um, there's full positive where all the wires are, are hooked to the positive side. So in that instance, an animal has to touch the wire. The current goes through the animal, across the ground to the ground rods and, and up to the, the negative side on the energizer. Mm-hmm. Um, another method is what they call pause negative. So you will alternate. One wire will be hot or positive back to the usually the red side of the energizer and the other wire will be negative and that'll go back to the to the ground rods and the green side of the energizer Mm -hmm. now a full pause negative system that grounding system will be connected all the way back to the energizer's ground Mm -hmm. so that means if you're going under gates you have two wires one positive one negative running under the gates every right Mm -hmm. um some systems will run you know, if it's typically maybe I still have earth good earth grounding, but maybe I'm having winter installation ins, insulation problems on snow. Mm-hmm. Well, in a system like that, I can just have a ground rod on the fence that those ground rods are connected to, and then the energy is still conducting through the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, that case, you could you could use a, a pause negative that isn't full back to the energizer. Okay. Um, a third system, um, there's certain energizers out there that you can you can run. And it's a bipolar system, they call it. Mm -hmm. So the way that works is you have hot wire hooked to the hot side, and then you have 
another wire hooked to the ground side and then that energizer has a third output that is hooked to the grounds and what it does is it basically you have full power on the one hot wire you have half power on the on the ground wire and then if the two are touched together the the full circuit is closed as well mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of a pause pause negative kind of configuration right and on that, um, whereas on a it... pause negative setup i have no power on the negative one okay. they would have to contact the positive and negative together to close the circuit right okay and versus the uh the bipolar an animal would receive a shock from any of the wires but receive a full shock if it touches the pair the, the, if it if the closes the ground through the ground return right. yes. okay Okay. But if you have poor earth grounding and they touch the two together, that will also close the circuit. Okay. So it's a it's a system that I think currently it's just available on some uh true test energizers, Datamar mm -hmm. energizers. Mm -hmm. Um Gallagher used to do it on some of their energizers, but hasn't done it in a while. So it's a it's quite a bit more complex setup to to do. So it, it's a lot of people find it a little challenging. Okay. So typically most common would be a pause negative. And that's only if I have poor earth grounding conditions, like let's say I'm in Kamloops or somewhere up in the dry grasslands, you know, there I would probably be forced to run a pause negative system to ensure that, you know, the animal doesn't get a shock from just touching the hot, that if they're going to get a shock, if they touch the hot and negative together. Right. Okay. So while you're on those discussing um, good earth grounding and poor earth grounding, let's talk about, ground rods for an energizer, ground rods per joule, and and go a little bit more into what you mean by uh, good grounding, good, good earth grounding conditions um, for a fence. So soil depends, the soil has to be conductive. So it's, it's acting like a wire. It's acting as a return wire across, you know, back to the, to the grounding. So I could potentially, let's say dry sand is not a good conductor. Mm -hmm. um, I could have, you know, gravel that's, you know, those rocks aren't really hard to barely touching each other. You know, they're not good conductive materials. There can potentially be a, a poor grounding conductor. Mm -hmm. um, typically, if you have green grass growing, you usually don't have issues with ground conductivity. Mm -hmm. There's usually enough there for it to, to close the circuit. It's areas where I start getting really dry ground grass conditions that even you know, typical soils and clays could be poor earth grounding just because there's not enough moisture in them to to make them conductive. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the, the factors you'll find if I have, you know, if that ground is not conductive, you know, even rock, I could have pure rock that, you know, if it's limestone or something, it might not be a very good conductor. Whereas if it's iron ore, it might be a really good conductor. Okay. So I yeah. might be okay, right? And so you mentioned earlier as well the winter time and when the ground's frozen you've got snow on the ground then that's another time when a when a producer could have conductivity issues yeah it's not the frozen ground itself it's the snow snow okay. so if you get you know some compact dry snow that snow can act as an insulator mm -hmm. so it doesn't allow the animal's hooves to come in contact with the actual ground to to close the circuit mm -hmm. so that's usually the condition is happening and it doesn't happen all the time but it can happen in the right snow conditions okay that you don't get a good earth so it's very important usually if you're doing winter stuff that they're trained so they understand what the fence is and that there's 
good power on the fence to make sure that you do get shocked when they are able to get a shock. Okay. And the, I think the number one issue that you're going to see if you go out there and someone says their electric fence isn't working, it's typically going to be related to the grounding system. That's the, it seems to be the number one fencing problem. So can you talk us through what kind of problems we see and, and what are the best practices for your ground rod system? So I had a customer one time phone me up. Yeah. I already had a pretty good size energizer and you know, I think he had probably a 15 drill energizer and he wanted to go even bigger. He says, Mm -hmm. Oh, it's not working. I need a bigger energizer. So I said, okay, uh, I got to drive by your place. I'll stop in and, and have a look. So mm-hmm. I drive in there and he's got his energizer over in the machine shed. And it's the ground rod is a rusty piece of rebar inside the shed right. that he has it up to. Wow. And I'm like, well, there's your first problem. Mm-hmm. So typically with grounding, a, a good rule of thumb is about a, for every jewel you want about three feet of ground rod mm-hmm. in the ground. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I have a 10 joule energizer, I should have about three, 30 feet of ground rod in the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, once I get up into the really big energizers, like I typically say anything over eight, instead of just using, you know, your typical little half inch or three quarter inch ground rod, I look to go to either a Galv pipe or um, Gallagher makes a, they call it Kawani ground rod. It's like a six inch piece of galvanized metal that's, that's bent into like a W shape. Mm-hmm. So that has a more surface area so i can use i can offset with surface area instead of more ground rods okay right so not all like i said if you use a larger surface area ground rod you may not need as you know as many foot of ground rod to offset that Mm -hmm. i need to have enough grounding and typically you'd put those 10 feet apart so you're creating an antenna Mm -hmm. right so if i had i'm just gonna let's say let's say i had you know that 10 joule again so i need 30 feet so potentially i need you know, you know, to go six foot, I maybe five or six ground rods to, to get that distance, right? I have mm-hmm. enough grounding in there. And I want those 10 feet apart so that I'm creating an antenna that's going to capture that signal that's coming across the ground from the from the animal touching, right? Okay. So again, if you're doing like a good rule of thumb, if you're doing a any energizer as a main um, base station, I say at least three ground rods or more. Mm-hmm. you know, then move up to more. Um, if it's a portable, then it's a little different story. We're kind of just going to put enough grounding in that we need just because we're moving it. So we got to take the ground out. So, you know, it, we're not, you know, maybe going to do those full three ground rods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that might be a smaller factor. energizer as well. You might be moving usually a, yeah. one jewel or something like that. Yeah. Typically our portable energizers are typically not more than about three joules. Mm-hmm. So you might have a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of three foot ground rods that you put in to, to do those. Um, if you're, and again, those ground rods should be galvanized. Mm-hmm. Um, and in electric fence system, you should only really have three metals. So you can use galvanized stainless steel or aluminum. Mm-hmm. Those three metals play nice together. Mm-hmm. Um, if you start adding in brasses and coppers, you'll get oxidization, which will then not have good contact. Right. So we want to keep to just those three metals to ensure we have, have uh, no oxidation and good conductivity. Okay. And now going back to that same customer, so his grounding was bad. Then I look to see what he's leading out to the fence with. Well, he has a roll of household, you know, typical just 14 gauge household wiring mm-hmm. up through his metal rafters and out to his fence. Mm-hmm. 
well, that wire is only rated for maximum 600 volts electricity and we're putting up to 10,000 volts through it. So very quickly, the shielding, plus that was copper wire. So very quickly, that shielding will break down and that wire will start to leak. And then because it's copper, there'll start to be some oxidations. We're making the connections of the energizer to the fence. So that's, again, another issue. So that's where you need to go. In his case, he needed more ground rods and proper lead out. Mm-hmm. So he bought some high conductive lead out cable and, you know, a bunch of ground rods, you know, so instead of buying, you know, a thousand something dollar energizer, it cost him a few hundred dollars in ground rods and lead out cable. Okay. And, and solve his problem with the energizer he already had. And you mentioned, I mean, if uh, maybe we've got that rusty ground rod and not only that, maybe it's uh, inside of a shed. It's, it sounds like the placement of that wasn't ideal either. I mean, we want to look for the ideally a moist place to put that ground field if possible. Yeah, as moist as like moist is very helpful. So if you do have the opportunity to do that, but even just outside, lots of times I put them on a drip line of a building because mm-hmm. um, lots of times we'll put a little trench along where that drip line is and, and you know, bring our ground rods right down so they're under the ground a bit. So they're not going to be a hazard with mm-hmm. the connection wire. Mm-hmm. But if we could put that in a drip line, it's always, you know, water running off the roof is going to is going to keep that area moist. So that that can be helpful. Um, out along a fence line, you know, again, somewhere where they're going to be, you know, not disruptive be dug up accidentally if you do have the opportunity to put like if you're doing a positive negative fence and you have the opportunity to put them down a lower spot then that that can be beneficial as well mm-hmm. um, but typically just having a wet ground rod doesn't always mean i have good ground activity the ground could still be dry and not conductive right somewhere else on the farm like you know you, you've got some yeah. of these bigger systems ranches that are running hundreds of um of acres of land the animal on the far hill on the opposite side of the farm, uh, you might still have a challenge bringing back the the charge all the way back to your distant ground system through some dry ground in between. You you could, yeah, yeah. I mean, t- typically, again, if you got green grass, it's typically not an issue. Mm-hmm. It, it just we really do see issues where it's, you know, like I said, sandy, gravelly conditions, or like I said, really, you know, semi-arid or desertish type conditions is where you know, we start to really have to look at pause negative or the other place we'll use pause negatives or predation control, right. you know, for trying to get coyotes and wolves, then we want to make sure that we're for sure going to get them. So we'll run a pause negative system for that. Okay. Gotcha. And, and just to clarify, you're mentioning that you might be able to put your ground system in a more favorable location in the case that you're running a positive negative system, because you can carry that ground out on your negative wires on the fence to a different place on the farm rather than running straight from your uh, right from your energizer with insulated hookup wire where you'd probably want it to be closer if possible. Yeah. Yeah. So if I have a, if I have a full pause negative system and I'm running grounding all the way back um, then yeah, I can, it doesn't really matter where my ground rods are placed there. It's, it's, it's the signal's going to go to that ground rod and back that on that wire. Right. Mm-hmm. But again, with pause negative, you do open yourself up to more, maintenance and trouble issues right Mm -hmm. because if anything shorts out between those two wires it's a dead short so ideally all positive is the best if you can do it and you know that's usually where i would recommend but again that could typically depend what you're you know if you're in southern alberta or like i said up in the hills and camlets where it's dry you that you might just have to go to a positive negative to start Mm -hmm. you've mentioned uh kind of short-term gain versus long-term pain or or how you look at that investment in the fence. So you want to talk about that for just a minute? 
Yeah. So like lots of times I yeah, like I say short-term gain, long-term pain, or, or the other one I use lots of times is, is, you know, once and done, mm -hmm. you know, like if I'm going to do a project, like a fence project, you know, and it's going to be permanent, do it right the first time, you know, sp spend the money to use the best quality materials and, and do it right and do it once. And you'll find that, you know, your maintenance will be way less and, and that fence won't cost you that much over its over its lifetime. If you don't do it right and you don't do the proper, you know, bracing and 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 stuff, you'll find that that break that fence will fail and, and you may never get it back to where it should be. Mm -hmm. Right. No, that's a great point. Gotcha. Okay. And so I'm setting up all this different kind of uh, exterior fencing discussions on electric fencing. Uh, because I do want to talk a bit about m moving toward rotational grazing. So some folks have understood the concepts of managing stock density and time control of uh, the amount of time livestock have access to a paddock for a very long time. I know there's a passage out there from 1777 where James Anderson, a Scottish farmer, recommends that farmers with sufficient land divide it into 15 to 20 paddocks for rotational grazing. But we have to assume that they were subdividing fields with stone walls and timber fences. And you did mention the stone fence earlier, but uh, electric fencing has definitely made this controlling stock density and adapting your grazing a lot more manageable. So let's talk about integrating the use of portable fencing for that livestock grazing management piece. Okay. Um, I'll even carry the whole system. Like in a design, if I'm, so I'm going to start from scratch and just to say, I'm just, you know, going to, we're going to do a, a, a pasture. And so what we're going to look at initially is we're, you know, this is a, a pasture that's going to be grass. So we're going to look to do a perimeter electric fence. Um, so we're assuming there's no fencing. So a perimeter electric fence, typically I like to have a three strand if it's cattle. And part of that reason is, is because it gives me a little bit extra security, but also I need the carrying capacity, especially if I'm doing a large system. So I need a main grid power line. So that three wire perimeter can act as my main grid power line. And then we would typically, if it's riparian zone or alleys, lots of times we'll look to two wire. And then if it's just cell divide or even sometimes on an alley, it can just be a single wire. Mm -hmm. um, now you could do your alleys and have gates, or I do have, you could do a hybrid system where you're going to actually lift the wire and pass the animals under the wire to go into each one of your strip cells. That's mm -hmm. another option you can do as well. So mm -hmm. there is, there are some options, or uh, like I said, you could split them down into to cells with a gate access and then split those cells even more with using portable poly fencing. Mm -hmm. So that would be a typical plan. So like I said, I'd have my perimeter in three, I might have an alley down the middle that's in, in one or two that, the animals are moving from the cells, which are split singly with a high tensile, back into a, a water source, right? So they're coming out of a gate down the alley. And that cell I may divide a few more times with a portables across. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's say I want to do it, I move every two days. They might be in that cell for, you know, 68 days. So I'm using those portables to break that up for those periods, right? Okay, yeah. And the... the... So port portable electric fencing is it's it's a it's an electrical twine so it's a uh, we call it a poly wire and it's a polymer so a plastic twine that has small um steel or 
blended wires in it. So like a Gallagher turbo wire, for example, will have six stainless steels and then it'll have three uh, multi-filament wires, which have like a, a blend of, of uh, aluminum and copper in there. Mm -hmm. And so they're high conductive. So higher conductive wires are not as strong. So that's why we maintain the six stainless for the strength. Mm -hmm. um, not all polys. If I take Gallagher standard poly wire, which is only six stainless steel strands, it has a working limit of about three to 400 meters. Any more than that, it has too high a resistance and you're not going to have a high enough deliverable shock. Mm -hmm. We go over to the poly wire or the, to the turbo wires or higher conductive poly wires. You can go miles with those because they're those extra high conductive wires brings the resistance down, which allows them to be a much more efficient carrier of electricity. Okay. Gotcha. And, and then you're going to be carrying that poly wire on some kind of reel, ideally. I mean, I have seen people wrapping poly wire around a, a you know, a piece of cardboard, a stick, or, um, you know, or an old spool from, um, some other kind of cable, but the, the retrieval reels are a pretty nice development. Yeah. If you want your poly to last, keep it on a reel. That way you can keep any excess you don't use stored on the reel, and then it's easy to reel up. Um, there is different reels, so you can have just a one-to-one -one reel. Um, there's geared reels out there. Uh, we have reels that you can use a cordless drill on. Um, we have even bigger reel sets that have a power driver that mm -hmm. winds them in. You can wind a half mile in at a time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, depending on what the scope of your operation is, um, typically if you're doing a high-density regular move electric fencing, you're probably not going to be doing more than a 200 meter run. Um, that's usually an ideal distance to, you know, with, you know, it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot, you know, 20 or 30 posts in a, in a reel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if I start going further than that, it, it just is more cumbersome and harder to move, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm moving every day or every other day, I typically want to make that as easy as possible. Sure. And then um, another option you could do as well is um, Gallagher has a system called the tumble wheel, which is a okay. post that you can actually just roll along. So right. and a lot of very high density operations will have a tumble wheel ahead and a tumble wheel behind, and they'll just keep multiple times a day. They may just keep rolling those fences ahead. And the tumble wheels take the place of the uh, the step in posts or tread in posts, like uh, the yes. pigtail post people would have seen, or um, newer versions that are really nice that have a what they call a ring top that don't get tangled up as much. They don't have that pigtail portion sticking out. The Gallagher pigtail or ring top post has replaced the pigtail and is is actually my preferred favorite because again they don't tangle. Um, there's also no metal in the in the top of that ring like there is on the old pigtails the old pigtails that would wear through the plastic coating and hit the metal and short out mm -hmm. so with those new ring tops that doesn't happen because they're actually a molded um nylon is what they are they're they're, they're like a nylon resin mm -hmm. that that is put into a mold and then pressed into the mold and with that molding they've been able to shape that post so that you could literally just grab it by its 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 uh, step-in part, reach down and just literally flick the poly off the ground and right into it mm -hmm. and then stand it up and, and step it in. So it, they're designed to be very quick to to uh, install and, and um, the standard ones are fairly lightweight. You can get heavy-dutier ones if you want for more winter or harder 
harder applications. But for the summer, again, we're trying to keep things as light as possible. So um, I know the uh, post is significantly lighter than the than the the old traditional uh, pigtail posts. Mm -hmm, definitely, they're a good quality product, and and we'll typically in in our subdivisions with polywire we might put it depends on whether the ground's rolling how far apart you need to put the posts but you just need to keep the wire up off the ground at a reasonable height for the cattle so we're talking typically we might put them 20 meters apart um, uh, for those ring top posts and it be pretty similar with the tumble wheels now i mean we're we're over the podcast format people are going to have to use their imagination or look up a picture. hey everyone this is jordan the host of the podcast just cutting in to tell you that if you check the notes for this episode you'll find a link to a very short youtube video that shows you what a tumble wheel looks like if you don't have those notes handy what you can do is google tumble wheels on the move and look for a 42 second youtube video by tracking y ranch Okay, back to the episode. Post and it be pretty similar with the tumble wheels. Now, I mean, we're we're over the podcast format. People are going to have to use their imagination or look up a picture. But the tumble wheel has, I believe, it's is it five or six feet, uh, and six it, six feet, and it rolls along, and the device insulates the bottom two feet on the ground so that the wire is not shorting out, and the upper feet that poke out are electrified so the cattle don't touch it. And if you unhook your reel from a permanent fence on the side and walk down the side of the field, all of these wheels tumble along moving the fence line forward. Yeah. And typically you're looking at, I mean, you can stretch them 80, hundred feet. Um, mm -hmm. just depends. But again, typically you're probably not going to do more than hundred meters or, or 200 meters max. Cause it does get again, too long. Um, the trick to using tumble wheels is to have a reel on both ends mm -hmm. So that you can go to the one side, reel it in a bit, and then roll that end, and then unhook it, you know, take it back to the fence, tighten it up, go to the other end, grab that reel, reel up a little bit, roll that end. So your fence is never going to be straight across. You're always probably going to have a bit of a bow in it, but it will just continue to move forward as you move it. Mm -hmm. And it makes it really easy to give them a small amount of feed. Yeah, that reel can just be a a cheapy reel on the other end that you just wind up a little bit on just enough that you could, you know, have something there to move it. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause you have to move both ends. So, but yeah, you, you know, you might be only moving 10 or 15, 20 feet at a time because mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're, you're moving. And, and a lot of times they may be moving the front fence and then, you know, go do a big move on the second one. Right. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But yeah, step in posts I, I, for budgetary, I usually say 10 meters. Mm -hmm. is a good budgetary number for for when you're planning your step in posts um like you said you can stretch them further maybe in your application but there may be times where you need more so i usually say if you're budgeting 10 meters would be um you know 30 feet would be what i would 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 uh say for budgeting mm -hmm. uh and real wise how, how well your cattle are trained to it as well that that too yeah 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 and, and like i said there may be you know, sometimes there's areas where you only have 10 or 12 feet apart. It just depends what your train is, right? Because you still have to maintain that height. So again, it's not always an exact distance. It, you know, I'm playing the average, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there may be places where I need posts closer together and there may need posts where I can spread them further apart. Okay. And we'll move toward wrapping it up now. I want to respect your time and we've, we've had you for a full hour now. And um, so 
first, I wanted to ask you if there's anything that we missed that you'd really want a producer looking to use electric fencing for rotational grazing to, to know about. Um, like, what, what did we miss talking about here? Um, one thing that's really critical is um, tester. Always make sure you right. have a tester to yes. test your fence. Um, if it's just a small thing, you can just have a digital one or a little five light. If you are a bigger operation, I would suggest getting something with that also measures the amperage. So the amperage will measure the current flow and direction. So if you have leakage, it'll tell you how much and what direction that is in. Um, other thing I typically on a larger section is cutout switches. So if you're doing a larger farm operation, especially if you're operating through the winter as well, um, cutout switches on your fence lines could be good management tool because I could shut down zones without affecting the, the energizer mm -hmm. you know i yeah there's energizers out there remote controls that i can turn off to do a quick repair but that doesn't help me if i want to turn that section off permanently right mm -hmm. the season so typically you know if you're a farm and you're using those outer pastures as you come into the fall you're going to start shutting the outers off and moving in maybe closer to home and just keeping the power on in that zone and not worrying about what those fences are happening to them in the winter out there you'll deal with that in the spring when you go to turn them back on again. Mm -hmm. those cutouts also help with troubleshooting because you can if your um your fence tester is leading you down toward that zone you can shut that off and see if it fixes the problem well now we know that the problem's over there in that paddock exactly and like i said i i'm even if i have a remote i may not have it with me right so i can go to the closest cutoff shut it off fix the fence or do what i have to and turn it back on again mm -hmm. so like they're a great management tool to to have built into to a system um and yeah i mean and you know, a couple of other quick things i'll touch on again is is lead out cable make sure you're using uh, you know quality made for high powered energizers or, or high you know electric fencing don't be using household wiring and co connections make sure you're you're using clamps to make all your connections and stuff on your fences is another critical one as well. Okay. And what uh, what resources would you point people toward as they're learning about this? I know BC has an agricultural fencing handbook that does have some good materials. Going to mention the, the BC Agricultural Handbook is is a great resource. Um, it is a little dated. It had they had did a revision of you know, probably 15 years back, but it's, it's still a little bit, yeah, 2015 was when it was revised. Mm -hmm. So it's still a bit dated, but yeah, it's, it's a great resource for bracing and, and all that. Um, again, another resource, which is really good. Um, you could find a link to it on our site. We have a guides and advice site on our fencefast.ca site. Mm -hmm. And in there we have um, a link to the Gallagher 101 book, which is another great resource as well. Uh, but yeah, we, like I said, if you want to check out there, we have quite a few, um, blog posts on, you know, electric fencing for cattle, electric fencing for elk, sheep, goats, different categories. Great. So that's where people can get their wire spacing recommendations and things like that as well. So that you mentioned yeah. your website, uh, some good resources there. And also that's a good place for people to go look up what a tumble wheel looks like if they want to know. Uh, so how can people track you down, learn more about your products and services that you offer? Um, our site is is fencefast.ca is so it's just uh fence f e n c e f a s t dot c a great and if you like i said one of the great easiest things to just kind of learn about the electric fencing on that is just to go to our guides and advice section of, on the 
on the top menu and we have some great blog post links in there on you know how to select an energizer um, on po portable posts uh, permanent stuff and even down into you know animals and different animal breakdowns on recommended electric fencing for them as well excellent yeah because we could go i could talk to you about this all afternoon but i really appreciate you taking the we time could. to share all this great information and and your experience and background with our listeners and uh thank you very much on behalf of and organic bc if someone does want help with planning their electric fencing or things like that we're glad to 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 help out with that too and make a list of material that you might need and things like that so Excellent. they can just reach out to us at, at fence fast as well great um, i've done it enough that you know it only takes me a few minutes to make up a list of what you're going to need yeah definitely <laughs> so, and i'm al always talking to customers and and stuff on ideas they come up with and that i can share with other customers and and that's the thing about electric fencing you can get pretty creative with stuff with it and mm -hmm. uh like even just like a real trick lots of times we use a, a a drape wire or drape train i call it like into a ditch or somewhere where you can't you know you don't want to put a fence down in there you can hang down some chain and electrify that and that right. keeps them from going underneath the fence right like debris or other things could go through it if necessary through a fence yeah we've done them across streams yeah. like that where you know like we have water that comes up and down and we can even put in uh um, a floodgate controller in there. So if the water comes up, it touches that, and it'll shut that section off. Okay. And then when the water goes back down, it'll come on again. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it, Axel. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. It's Jordan again. And uh, about a week ago on April 1st, I put out a fake episode called The Sexual Politics of Organic Farming. That was really a request to get a little bit of listener participation in the Organic PC podcast. And what I asked for was your short tribute to someone in the farming community in BC or your farming community specifically who is doing great work or inspires you or you just want to give a shout out to. And I had a couple submissions and I'm going to share one in this episode. Just before I do that, I want to say I would love to keep getting a few of these little micro tributes. And the way to do it is to pull out your phone, get a recording app set up on your phone, press record, don't press stop, just start talking, take as many pauses as you need, make flubs and restate yourself, make it a single recording. And then once you said what you want to say, stop it and email it to me at farmer at unearthedorganics.ca. And I will edit it to sound smooth and include it in a future episode. That is farmer at unearthedorganics.ca. I'd love to hear from you. And here is listener Ben with a shout out that he wanted to share. Thanks a lot, Ben. My name is Ben from Nanaimo, British Columbia. And I'm just between the service and the bonfire for a celebration of life for a wonderful, inspiring farmer in our community named Craig Evans. I met him 10 years ago um, through Providence Farm in the Cowichan Valley where he did some really wonderful work and began his work with Growing Opportunities, which he founded. And his work that he brought to Nanaimo, where he has lived for the last 30, 40 years, he uh, created so many opportunities here. He's founded the Nanaimo Recycling Exchange. He founded Nanaimo Food Share. 
with partners, of course. He founded the Nanaimo Community Gardens, and he founded Growing Opportunities, for whom I am working now and hoping to continue on his legacy, um, growing food for those with challenges. Craig was a very wonderful and spirited man, and when you asked him if it could be done, his answer was always, you bet. And we're going to miss him a lot, and we're going to keep growing that kale, Craig. We're going to keep missing you and keep working. All right, that's it for now, everyone. I want to thank Tristan and Axel for putting together this great episode for us. And I also want to acknowledge that this episode of the Organic BC podcast was supported by the BC Climate AgriSolutions Fund. Finally, thanks to Matt Eckel for providing all the music that you hear in these episodes. That's it for now. Time to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>